This episode of the Wedding Film School Show is brought to you by Musicbed, the best music licensing platform for wedding filmmakers. Head over to themusicbed.com and enter our code WFS on checkout to get a free month on your annual wedding subscription. Now, on to the show. The receptiveness of a camera company, it matters. I think it matters to a lot of uh, people out there, especially wedding filmmakers who are using this thing weekend, week out, like it's their baby. I don't know of another camera manufacturer that provides that direct a pipeline to our users where we're literally soliciting feedback, answering your questions, demonstrating features for people from the manufacturer's perspective as they're asking them of us. Ultimately, it helps us build better products. I have never thought this camera's too heavy, but I have often thought this lens is too heavy. I would agree. And I think grip design comes into play there as well. Sometimes the marketing team ultimately wins and they go a little smaller than people mm -hmm. want and then hear about it. So I think reliability really means something when you're tearing down at the end of the evening and you know the 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 venue's trying to kick you out of there and you're just shoving stuff into the bag that never happens that never <laughs> happens we are very organized people matthew Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wedding Film School Show. My name is Jared Haskell and we have another awesome episode for you guys today. But before we hop into it, I'm here with my business partner and co-host Jason McCutcheon. What's up, dude? Jared, what is one thing that you want to do better at weddings this year? Ah, oh, do better at weddings. Like like with your camera specifically. Um, well, I would love to um get my uh, subjects in focus more <laughs> this year, which um, more usable shots that aren't out of focus, more Very usable high shots that aren't, uh, yeah, out of focus, um, using, yeah, our cameras. So, uh, which actually brings us into our guest today. And, uh, uh, we have Matthew Frazier from Lumix, uh, the business development, um, management. And, uh, we, uh, Matthew, we just met and Japan a couple months ago, they were nice enough to uh, host uh, a reveal of the new Lumix S5 II, and we were honored to be a part of that unveiling and uh, got to meet the team. And so we thought it would be great to have Matthew on today and not only talk to the camera, but also talk about just Lumix in general and well, camera just, companies and the direction that, that we're going here. We wanted to do a little different because we wanted to give, we want to always give filmmakers insight into the people that are making their tools, right? And so we're not pushing one tool or another tool, but I think good tools. Yeah. And a lot of, we just did a survey in our group and it was like 20% of filmmakers, which at one point, like, like, I don't know if I was surprised by it because it's a very vocal group of people that are big fans, but Lumix has always had like, a really strong presence in the wedding filmmaking community. And so I guess um, I, I thought it'd be awesome to hear directly from them. Um, you know, if you're listening, we're not getting anything financially from this and nothing like that. We, we're just interested and we're curious and we like to give people an opportunity to look behind the curtain a little bit. So without further ado, how you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. So, so first of all, um, it was actually a pleasure having both of you out to, to Japan. I mean, the, the, the truth is we've been kind of quietly lurking with your channel for the past few years. So we've been fans from afar and we've been waiting for that opportunity to be able to engage um, in a more meaningful way with your viewing audience. So um, we figured this camera was the perfect opportunity for us to uh, uh, sort of to come out and, and make ourselves more visible to your community. So again, thank you guys for coming out. And honestly, just thanks for your support and everything that you guys have been doing. Yeah, we love it. And you know, like I always tell people like what there's a classic knock on YouTubers like don't listen to anyone who got a camera for free. Don't listen to it. And I'm always like you think we can afford <laughs> all these cameras? Like like that being said, we we don't talk about stuff that we if people knew the amount of things that people wanted us to make where I'm like that thing sucks. I'm not making that. I always will be like i am not reviewing that it's a bad product i don't stand behind it like and i always tell like we were talking matt and i'm like hey i'm not originally a lumix shooter either i'm just telling you from perspective of like unbiased camera person 
Um, we had a great time in Tokyo, by the way, and we learned a lot about your culture as a company, right? And I've been learning, like, we've we've had interactions with, like, Lumix ambassadors for years, and I know ambassadors for all their companies, and this always, like, stuck out to me, like, how good you treat your ambassadors, Matt. Well, I think we have some really high-quality ambassadors, mm -hmm. you know, between Matthew Sutherland and obviously Jordan um, and, you know, Charles and Jennifer Maring. They're all three highly skilled wedding videographers, um, all of them focusing on very different sort of levels of videography um, when it comes to wedding work. But you know, the truth is that we look at the wedding videography community as sort of a test bed for how much abuse our cameras can take. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, we, we assume that if we can survive the average, you know, season to five seasons of wedding videography work and wedding photography, um, then we know we're making a pretty good product. And so that's, that's really what we look at is what does this market want? Um, we think one of the biggest reasons people gravitate to our brand or are so loyal to us is just the amount of reliability they can get from our cameras. Um, you know, every camera company is going to say that they're extremely reliable and in, and in general, they will be very reliable tools. But when you get to markets where it's going to get hotter, um, our cameras tend to pass that test better than others. And I think that's a big reason why people like our product. Um, I also think that a lot of people who are doing wedding work really are had at one point or are currently aspiring to be cinematographers, right? I think at the end of the day, they'd like to be doing, you know, either commercials or they'd like to be doing, you know, you know, narratives or documentary work as well. And we focus on giving tools that, you know, people who are in production uh, demand out of a, out of a cinema camera. And so. Well, um, a lot of them yeah. actually do both at the same time. Right. Right. And so like, the, what is it like the last S5 was the first mirrorless that was uh, Netflix approved. Right. Or was that? Yeah. So the S yeah. S1H S1 got H. Netflix certified as a, a primary camera, which that's just a fancy way of saying if Netflix is paying the bill, you can use the Panasonic S1H as your primary camera. Or now it's the BS1H and the BGH1, which are two box cameras as well. Very cool cameras. By the way. I, like, honestly, I'm always like, I really, I'm an actual camera nerd. And I always am like, oh, I wish I could use that camera for weddings. They're just like, <laughs> it's not practical, but I always, like, I, I'm always like a little jealous when people get to kit out that kind of stuff. So, so what in filmmaking, like you mentioned like brutality, right? <laughs> just pure brutality on cameras. Like what does a camera company do? Maybe even specifically, what does Lumix do? Like when they're trying to like test these things, like how do you like when you're in divine and R and D you're like, okay, so we have to do this to make it like tough. We have to do this to make it like, what are the things you're kind of trying to do when you're designing a camera to keep in mind a use case like wedding filmmaking? So I think on, on one end, we have to worry about the camera surviving during the production of your equip of your, you know, of your piece. On the other end, we just have to make sure it's basically durable. So if a tripod gets knocked over, um, there's a, there's a decent chance that it's going to survive that being knocked over occurrence. So on the production side during filming, the, the keys for us are um, just having high quality magnesium alloy chassis in any of our cameras that we target at professional filmmaking or professional video production. So um, always full magnesium alloy chassis. Um, we have a very different way of doing stabilization than our competitors do. And, you know, some people really like the look of our stabilization. Um, it does come at a cost. There's a significant amount of weight that's in our image stabilization. Um, if you, I mean, you've had the S5 too, you can feel that thing shaking around in that chassis. Oh yeah. And it's because it's, you know, coupled to a brass system in order to get the heat away from the sensor. So um, we refuse to compromise our principles on thermal management uh, in order to get the camera weight or camera body size down. Um, we'd rather look for more elegant approaches to make it work if we have to get the camera downsized, which is why we do fans in a lot of the cameras. Um, the S5 II is a fan equipped camera now. So that's, those are the things that we really focus on is making sure the camera is durable and then making sure it's weather resistant. So you know, you're not gonna have to worry about rain or sleet or you know, you know, minor occurrences of you know heavy rain. Um, I, I think it's also important to note that all of our lenses, especially on the S series, um, GH not not always the case, but 
in the S series, all the lenses are weather sealed. So even that kit lens 20 to 60 that we give you is, is weather sealed. So um, these are sort of just core principles. I'm making sure that the camera operates effectively and is properly cooled and won't have to worry so much about, you know, rain occurrences. And then beyond that, you know, magnesium alloy chassis, making sure that we build everything to be rugged so that when you're tearing down at the end of the evening and, you know, the, the, the venue's trying to kick you out of there and you're just shoving stuff into the bag. That never happens. That never happens. <laughs> we are very organized people, Matthew. Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway. I, I'm only talking about myself. Oh, oh only, yes, only, the, only, the, only the inexperienced people. <laughs> yeah. I, I can so. say as someone who regularly destroys uh, a lot of cameras uh, in the past 15 years of, of doing this and lenses, uh, I could I could just tell you we appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you know what's interesting is like, I'm always like curious like why camera companies think people want smaller and smaller cameras that function worse. Like like is there some market demand? Like I'm always like this camera's too small, this camera's too light. Like that's me personally. Like am I like a minority here, or is that like is there a huge demand for just smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more and more compact and like sacrificing things like heat management for si- you know size like it seems to me if they just make the cameras bigger we can have it all mm-hmm. well i think market share position would tell you that size has had an impact yes um, panasonic is not the number one camera in market share mm-hmm. uh and we're probably the largest and heaviest in the category you know even with an s5 ii we are going to be heavier than you know a sony a7 IV. we're going to be heavier than an r um, an R6 Mark II. So um, clearly the market wants um, lighter weight cameras or more compact and easier to work with. Um, our stance is that we're not willing to compromise our basic principles of reliability in order to achieve that more compact form factor. So uh, for us, it's probably a, a little bit more of a balancing act, trying to make sure that our products meet our principles while still getting to the size. I mean, when you, when you look at the first S series, like the S1 or the S1H, those are big boys. Those are big cameras. They're as they're DSLR sized. And it was all about maintaining really good ergonomics, you know, having all the menu options and function keys that people would want and uh, providing enough weight um, to be able to handle the thermal issues that will come up, especially with like burst rates and, and video. Well, shooting. even so, like balance, like you're putting a lens on that. Right. Like, if you're shooting video and the thing is so front heavy, like I always think like I have never thought this camera's too heavy, but I have often thought this lens is too heavy. Yeah. I can, I, I would agree. And I think grip design comes into play there as well. Yeah. It's crazy how much obsession our engineers have over grip design and how many different variants and how many people's opinions they get on where they end up with the final grip design. Um, sometimes the marketing team ultimately wins and they go a little smaller than people mm-hmm. want and then hear about it. So, you know, nine times out of 10, it's the engineers who went out and the feedback from our customers. That's an interesting, like, that's an interesting philosophy. It's like the engineer wins out, right? Yeah. Like, I was going to ask, is the S5 II grip a little bigger than the S5 I? Yes, it is bigger. That's yeah. no question about it. And yeah. I was like, for its bigger size was just what you're talking about, ergonomics. It's just easier to hold. Totally. Yes. If, if Yeah, I noticed that. But it's doesn't, it's almost indiscernible to your eye, but you feel it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. No I, question about it. It's I, definitely bigger. I think it's it's really interesting because there's so much overlap between the videographer and then also the photographer, right? Where a lot of times we're using same cameras. And in the last couple of years, there's maybe been a little bit more differentiation between the two. It's like people maybe making a camera that's maybe a little bit more suited for a photographer versus a videographer. Um, and so for a while, it was, it was kind of like, us videographers are just along for the ride of whatever photographers are wanting because they make up such a bigger part of the market. But now I, I do wonder if people are kind of going back that direction of like making a bigger frame that you can actually get your hands on and it's balanced and it's, you know, kind of geared more towards the filmmaker. I definitely feel like the S5 II, it just feels good in your hands as we're doing, you know, we're doing filmmaking um, in Japan. That was one thing that we noticed was just like, just feels so much better in my well, hands. Well, so, so this is my question, other cameras. Matt, is yeah. obviously from a standpoint of like, they, you know, they do have differently, you know, photographer cares about burst speeds. We don't care about burst speeds. So like yeah. apart from just exclusive features between like, photo features and video features. Like, do you think photo filmmakers and photographers have like 
absolutely competing desires or, or needs out of a camera? Or do you find that the overlap is pretty significant and you can make a camera that makes everyone happy? I, I think you I think you can make something that makes everybody happy. The, the question becomes, can we do it at a price point that makes everybody happy, right? Ah. So um, I, I think sometimes photographers, when they look at the feature sets that we add for video, they don't immediately see how those things translate to their photography. So let, let me give you one example. Um, the S5 II can do, you know, a 6K open gate capture, right? That's the full sensor height and width. And it does that at 30 frames per second. Well, if I don't have a sensor that can read out that fast, I don't have the ability to do burst photography at that rate of speed either. And so I think a lot of times photographers um, might get frustrated that they're paying for a feature like a 6K open gate because they're not going to ever shoot video. But what they don't see is that we honestly had to do that in order to give them the 30 frame burst capability. Um, and frankly, that video need is what then drives the development in the sensor for those higher burst rates from their camera. That's or, really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and another example would be like the GH6, which um, that camera can do burst rates of up to 60 frames per, actually can do up to 75 frames per second for photography. On the video side, it can do uh, 5.9K video at 60 frames per second. It can do 4K video at 120 frames per second. And that's full sensor width, no no crop other than the micro four thirds original crop. Um, but what people don't realize is we have something called a high, it's, it's called a, um, we, we call it the, um, sorry, a dynamic range boost function. And what that does is it actually runs the sensor at half the rate and it effectively sends the video signal out twice, one for the highlights and it's a real low gain and one for the shadows. So it's a lot of high gain and it combines the two into a single exposure and it does this per frame. So this means that photographers are getting, you know, a 16 bit photo file with crazy dynamic range of a micro four third sensor, but we could never have done that without the video need for like 120 frames per second or 60 frames per second. So those things really work together. There's a symbiotic relationship between what the photographer's need is, which is higher dynamic range and faster burst rates, and what the video shooter wants, which is higher dynamic range and higher frame rates for slow-mo and things like that. Well, it's just like, a lot of people don't realize like there's thermals and then there's like, thermals are related to readout speed. And like they're like, oh, I want that to be 4K, four K, four K sixty full frame, and you're like, okay, well, this like these are the trade offs. There's a reason why they have a twelve megapixel on an A seven S three. It's like they need to right. they they're reading less pixels. It's very simple. Yeah, I think yeah, this kind of gets into like why we do like four K sixty and a super thirty five or APS-C crop versus, an, uh, you know, an uncropped region of the sensor and. For years and years, if you wanted faster readout speeds, you'd have to do a window of the sensor to be able to get those readout speeds. It's still the case on a lot of the Blackmagic product today. Um, if you want 120 frames per second, you're going to window the sensor. Well, there's a uh, reason the Blackmagic doesn't make a full frame sensor. Like, like there's a reason why people do what they do with their, like, this is the thing I always try to like, you know, given, don't get me wrong, it's it's impressive when you pick up like a full frame camera and it's doing everything and all that junk, but typically you're paying almost twice as much for that camera. And my question is, do you think like, where's, how does a camera company like make the balance between features and price? Like, like, like obviously you're running a business, you have to make a profit on the product you sell. Like, like, like at one point do you take a risk where you're like, you know what, maybe if we did this, we could get more market share or like, like, is that like a challenging balance between like price and features? I, I think it is a, a, I think it is a challenging balance. I think it's a challenging balance for most companies. Um, I think where we have a slight advantage is that we do support two camera systems with two different sensor sizes and each of these sensor sizes can do very different things. Well, um, so when we design our engine, like the, the L squared engine, um, it was really designed around the engine that was put in the GH6. And all the serious development for that engine was done during the development of the GH6. So effectively, the reason we do that is that I can make a micro four-third sensor that's a quarter the size of a full-frame sensor read out much faster. 
And so it's easy for me to be able to develop like an unstacked, like a non-CMOS, like an unstacked sensor that can read out 120 frames per second in a micro four thirds, you know, shape. It's just easier because it's smaller. And so we can then look at that sensor development. And instead of it being a bunch of R&D that's waiting for a sensor to be ready for it, we can dump that R&D into a GH6 or a GH5. And then that R&D pays for itself in that camera system. And then there's other byproduct, right? Like smaller lenses, you know, lighter weight overall system. Um, but at its core, it's a faster readout speed, which gives us the ability to play faster or to offer these things ahead of a lot of the cameras in the market without compromising resolution. You know, I think Sony took a very big risk with cameras like the A7S and the A7S2 and the A7S3. And, you know, I, I think they deserve some credit for taking that risk and being successful with it. Um, but Micro Four Thirds allows us to fill that role in in a different way where we don't have to compromise resolution in order to get those higher frame rates. And don't have to offer stack sensors that are going to cause the price point to go way up in the product. Yeah, now on the on the practical side, I mean, for a wedding filmmaker to have both options, like you have your full frame sensor if you want to do that for you know portrait work and and kind of getting like super shallow depth of field, a certain type of look. But then if you want camera coverage, you have your Micro Four Thirds. Maybe it's a little bit more affordable for your person breaking into the industry. But then you still have right. that great kind of Lumix color and super consistent you know, output, uh, across the board. So I, I think it's a, a great system that way. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I've always found it like kind of challenging, like, like I, from a utility standpoint, I love the idea of, um, of having two very different systems that have mm -hmm. shine in different ways. Yeah. I've definitely like, how do you like find, do, do you find people like are often like, well, I'm going to start with GH6, like Micro Four Thirds, GH5, and then I'm going to, over time, work into the L system. Or do you find that like most people are like always working with both systems concurrently and using them in different ways? I wish I could tell you that there's one answer to that. I mean, you're going to have people who are Micro Four Thirds diehards. Yeah. Uh, yeah full disclosure, I, I am. I'm one of those guys. I don't shoot full frame unless there's a specific reason. Um, oh, I mean, so there's from, so many, it's such a strange thing to me because I come from like shooting 5D Mark IIs. Like that's how I got my start. Full frame, right. shooting full frame. That to me is filmmaking for no reason, but that's just what I started on. The amount of people I talk to that are like, and I, I've honestly been like, huh, maybe I'm wrong. Like they're like, oh dude, Micro Four Thirds is dope. You need to look at these micro, oh, they're, they're like, like people who like micro four thirds are micro four thirds fans. Totally. It's like a thing. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that there's a certain aesthetic you get from that sensor and it's just like for you. I mean, if you've shot full frame your whole life, it's really tough going to a micro four third sensor and expect to get a certain depth of field at like an F28 lens. And that's not equivalent to what you're getting in the micro four thirds sensor. And I, I understand that. I think that there's certain, aesthetics that we come to create because it's how we're used to shooting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do think that some people move to micro four thirds from full frame because they're trying to downsize the kit or they're trying to make it a little more incognito. So I think there are some people who do keep a micro four thirds kit for different things. Um, you know, I think like a guy like Jordan Bunch is a, is a good example of this, right? So Jordan does wedding work, but he also does documentary work. And there's times where you're going to be doing documentary work. You don't want to be carrying around a big, large DSLR. It may be less conspicuous that you're trying to be less conspicuous. You don't want to stand out. So that smaller, lighter weight body is not going to stand out. You may be in a conflict region where you don't want a camera that's going to look like a theft potential target. So going to a less expensive camera to carry around sometimes makes a lot of sense. Um, we do a lot with documentary filmmakers in the GH line as well because of the, how compact and lightweight the system is. And then ultimately the lenses can just be very inexpensive. You know, even at, at best, even if you're buying like third party lenses in a, you know, a 70 to 200 ish range, you're still going to pay more for that. Oh, I mean, I'm shooting on micro lenses. four thirds lenses right here mm -hmm. in the set, yeah. you know? So it's like, you know what I really like about and I think other people are doing this even with certain people who do full frame and they also do like an APS-C camera, right? Mm -hmm. Like having full frame when you don't need full frame is actually a detriment. And I think that's a thinking that people should have is like, why would I want a camera that 
can't shoot as much resolution, has a harder time with heat management, is bigger and more expensive. Just to shoot a wide shot of the ceremony, I would much rather have a 6K image in case I need to punch in that is on a much cheaper camera that I don't need the depth of field. I don't, I'm, I'm paying for features I don't need. And that's what I like about, like, to me, it seems like the Lumix philosophy is like, get you all the features you need in the camera that is the best value that's the most durable. Well, I, th I think in crop sensor, there's really only two companies that are taking crop sensor pretty seriously. Well, I should say three, because um, I think Olympus takes crop sensor very seriously. Obviously, it's micro four thirds and they have some amazing lenses. Um, and I'm beneficiary of that because they work on their system. Mm -hmm. I think Fuji takes um, crop sensor very seriously. And you have a tremendous number of lenses that are optimized specifically for their APS-C sensors. Um, I don't think the other camera companies take their crop sensor offerings very seriously. Especially so, not on the lens uh, side. Yeah. Right. And so ultimately, while the camera may be very capable, you're really compromising on the lens options that you have, especially when it comes to the wider angles of view. You know, it's easy for you to grab a full frame lens and use that in a telephoto situation. It's when I need a wide angle lens that I'm going to be using in for interiors or on a gimbal, you really start compromising the look and the aesthetic just to be able to get that, that APS-C um, sensor into the camera. So um, I just think people, when they're investing, they need to look at that and say, um, does the company I'm going to invest with have significant support for the mount that I'm going to be working with and the, and the sensor size I'm going to invest in? And a long-term long commitment too, right? Like that's to me is what it is. It's like, are they going to keep supporting it? Yeah. And, and obviously with, with, with us, I, I hope that I, I hope it comes through that, you know, we love micro four thirds and we're going to continue to support it. Um, I know there's a lot of people who think that Panasonic is moving away from this and that's, that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. We really do see these as two different tools that service two different needs. Um, you know, on the box camera side, I'll, I'll give you a little background that we're not supposed to share really, but you know, the, the truth is that we like, only like 20 we, people like this show. So th don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we sell a lot more micro four thirds box cameras than we do full frame. And, and it's because the user base who needs that box dialed camera where they need remote control, they need, you know, time code and gen lock in particular gen lock use a lot of live event and live production. Um, that micro four thirds camera is everything that they could ever hope for. And it's image quality it blows away any of the cameras they're usually using for it. And so we see all of these niches as really important to maintain our overall strategy. And so that's where micro four thirds really comes into play. Uh, we, we do recognize the market's moving full frame. We know this, I mean, it's very obvious to everybody, um, but we think that there's going to be eventually this kind of fragmentation where people are using different tools for different things, and they may not want to be tethered to just a full frame camera system. And they want a more complete crop sensor system to work with it. Don't you feel Jared, like in wedding filmmaking, it benefits you to, like, like, like there's really like multiple styles of shooting happening in the day. It's one of the most unique yeah. types of shooting because you have portrait work, which you might want to be more dreamy, right? You have detail work and then gimbal work yep, and then straight up just event coverage, low light event coverage yep. and daylight event coverage. Like you really do benefit from having a range of options and tools. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, you know, Lumix is one of those systems that it's just like you can get everything you need for a wedding day and kind of have specialty cameras as opposed to just being like, well, I got to really reach and, and, you know, spend this amount if I want it to all look similar and be on the same, um, you know, color color scope. Um, that That's hard for a lot of wedding filmmakers because we're really not like – I want to say color correction is our strongest. We're not suit. the most like we're we're not technical. Like yeah. like we, we we are, but we we know a lot about a little bit about a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's, but, that's it, good but I think like it was interesting to me when I was out there in Tokyo, Matt. Like I, was, I think I was talking to you a little bit about like you know we're we're, we're YouTubers, right? We're camera guys, but we're primarily technical, like camera. We're filmmakers, like we're we're I'm primarily an operator. Right? right. And so all I really think about is, will this feel good? And like, like something like, do I like how this autofocus disengages? Like when I'm hitting the button and thinking about that versus like all these other YouTubers are like, 
well, this feature and this set and this like, like, and it's interesting is like wedding filmmakers. Do you think it's like good or like, do you view it as like a hindrance when someone can only take like a narrow view towards a camera? Or is that like something that you guys are kind of like, these people are going to care about this. Like, like these people are going to be caring about these specific things. Like, cause it feels like statistics don't really push the needle as much with filmmaker wedding filmmakers as maybe feel and all the other creature comforts of filmmaking. So I, I guess I look at wedding videography maybe a bit differently. Um, there's no set recipe for how somebody effectively produces the content that they're producing for a wedding, for mm -hmm. a wedding film. Um, there are people who are highly successful and they're working with just basic camcorders or they're working with, you know, like non, you know, large sensor products for the bulk of what they're doing. And that's more of the live event style look. Right. And so, you know, you know, I, I deal with a lot of wedding videographers and some of this also comes down to, you know, like the, the, the race of the person and religious beliefs of those people and the celebrations that they have during their, their specific weddings. Um, you know, in the Indian community, it's extremely popular to work with a standard video-based camcorder. And sometimes it's just because the music that's being played at those events is so incredibly loud with so much bass that some designs like, you know, like an S5 II is probably not going to work because the in-body image stabilization will literally vibrate from the music that's being played. And so that's they may awesome. choose to <laughs> They may choose to go with a lens-based stabilization system like what's in our, our camcorder line or may work with a GH5S because they don't have in-body stabilization at all. And so it's it's those kind of differences that I think really put a lot of um, work on our shoulders to mm -hmm. make sure we're fulfilling those things. But the, the byproduct of it is it gives me products I can sell into other industries. So, you know, we, we have two camcorders I, I love. Um, and I think wedding videographers should be looking at, and that's the X2 or the X2000 or even like our X1500 and X20. And the reason I like them so much is that as your coverage cameras, they got long zoom lenses. They can go onto a tripod at the back. Um, you know, in the case of the X2, we offer V-log in the thing. <laughs> it's a 10-bit profile. So it matches in post with our regular cameras. And it's just an easy solution for back of the house to get to the front of the, to get to the bride and the well, groom. Well, depending on what, like you mentioned, like culturally, it is why wedding filmmaking is challenging to, you know, Jared and I talk about this a lot. Like, I feel like wedding filmmakers are a larger part of the market segment who purchase these cameras than the, the camera companies acknowledge. Like, yeah. like, I feel like because we're not making prestige work, like you never go to like a booth for like Canon and see a bunch of wedding films. You see all nature photography, all fashion. And that's every single like marketing campaign for every camera company is fashion, maybe action sports, maybe sports, like lots of nature. I'm like, how many people are buying these things for nature? Like, like maybe some of course, but I'm always like wedding filmmakers might be buying like, 15 cameras over the course of like eight years. This other guy you're trying right. to sell to might buy one camera. Why, why are we, why are we targeting that guy? Am I, am I missing something there? <laughs> well, but I, I, again, looking at how dynamic the environment is for what you guys do. I mean, I think that COVID really introduced uh, new styles of filmmaking that they hadn't even considered before, like mm -hmm. live production and having to actually be able to stream out something so that, the family that's not traveling can see this live. And now I, I think that wedding, the, the, the wedding videographer is now being asked to also be a live production professional as well. And they're being asked to do like a multi-camera live stream for people. And so a product that can fit into multiple categories and fill all those needs well becomes very valuable to this to this market but ultimately it also helps us with like houses of worship you know mm -hmm. if i if i have a product that works well for live event for a wedding it's going to work really well for a church it's also going to work really well for a funeral and so if we if we look at these categories and try to make our products um work well for all of those things and make it easy enough for a filmmaker to be able to branch out into these other opportunities uh I think ultimately it just ends up making them uh, more profitable as a business operator. Yeah. You know, Jared, like we've talked, we will not be specific, 
But we've talked about camera companies in the past who like we feel abandoned by. You know, like like when you give them your loyalty, your money, and you're like, you could just actively see that they really don't care about like your business. They're like, well, like they're primarily focused on either a different market segment or that you just actively, they basically just say it without saying it by the choices they make. Making oh. you buy mounts for all of your lenses that you've acquired over the last 12 years. <laughs> One camera company, if you know, you know. <laughs> Not supporting the yeah. lenses after like four years of manufacturing them. Like, like, you know, I feel like, like it's weird that you have this emotional relationship with a camera company. Mm-hmm. Like, like I feel like my camera company is like my partner, you totally. know, like totally. it's weird. Like, like I don't know the, the people at the companies half the time. I like, and I, but I'm like, Oh, how dare they do that to me? <laughs> this yeah. is, it's funny how that works. Yeah. But I think one of the things that I definitely got a, a sense for when we were in Japan and kind of learning about the system was just like Lumix, you guys are really interested in hearing what we have to say. And like, I can't tell you how appreciative us as wedding filmmakers are when it's just like, hey, we just want to hear what you guys think and give us your feedback. And like anytime we were like, what's up with this? Like, what's up with this part of the feature? This is different. You know, it was we immediately got the help that we needed. Of course, we're there for a Lumix event. But in general, it feels like the receptiveness of a camera company, it matters. I think it matters to a lot of uh, people out there, especially wedding filmmakers who are using this thing. Weekend, week out, like it's their baby. And we'll say this too. Like, I want to ask you one more question, Matt. But I'm not a Lumix shooter yet. Like, like I we have a Lumix cameras that they were nice enough to give us. But like, we're not like telling you like, oh, buy Lumix. Like, we're Lumix people, and we're not ambassadors. Like, we're just speaking about our experiences, and we've had experiences with a lot of camera companies, a lot of people who work. We own three or four different systems in our studio like so we're just speaking from our experience of like knowing a lot and people in the industry and working with a lot of cameras what is different and i guess my question that i'm leading into is okay you know who the big players are who are in the wedding filmmaking space we all know and honestly like if we're all being honest they're all doing good stuff everyone's making great products right now like it's the golden age of cameras in a lot of ways you know, why should someone who's considering either upgrading or maybe they're just unhappy, why should they consider, what do you think the biggest reasons why someone would want to switch to or upgrade to Lumix? <clears throat> well, that, I mean, that's that's a weighted question. Obviously, it's going to be very biased when it comes out of my mouth. Of course, I'm gonna have some pretty, of course it's biased. Strong yeah. opinion. Um, so I, I think if someone's looking at let's say the S5 Mark II, let's just speak specifically about that because it's our latest feature set and it ultimately kind of gives you a, a preview of what the future probably holds for our brand. Um, when we look at this camera in particular, um, I think reliability really means something in this segment in particular um, because weddings in the United States in particular can get very hot. Um, that thermal management component, I think is a pretty significant differentiator for us in the segment. You're usually having to go to a much more expensive, larger, more robust cinema camera or, you know, a, pro- a production camera to be able to get that kind of reliability out of the product. So I think I think that is a very um, uh, lesser understood or appreciated feature that we offer. I mean, I could say from firsthand, Matt, like when we were shooting, uh, where were we in the downtown area the, um, in to- Tokyo? Was it Ginza? I no, the big, the big the anime area. <laughs> Oh, uh, Akibara? Akibara? Yeah, Akibara, Akibara, like, yeah. yeah and, and a bunch of people are like, hey, we're seeing building warble. And you're like, oh, building warble, that's not good, you know? And then, like, within, like, a week, you're like, hey, we changed, we fixed it. Like, this is before the even camera came out. They're, the, the engineers are, like, re-engineering the, the camera to work better after just, like, a couple conversations in – I have worked with other camera companies and that is kind of unique. I don't know if you guys know that's unique. Like, or if you're like, if that's a purposeful difference, but it is the culture. 
that yeah. I've seen. Well, it, I can tell you how 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 ingrained it is in our DNA. <laughs> so um, we host a weekly live stream called Lumix Live, and it's on our YouTube channel for the United States. Check it out. And, you know, obviously it's, it gets viewed from around the world and it's hosted by Sean Robinson and it's a live Q&A. So we have no control over what people are going to ask us <laughs> in that Q&A. And we get a ton of feedback from people. And if you if you, you follow us enough through that Lumix Live uh, portal and you watch enough events go on, you will see members of that community when we do a firmware update go, we told you that that, that, that real-time LUT function was going to work. <laughs> That's my feature. I'm the one who told you guys about that. And that guy's probably right. He is probably correct. And he's probably the, the godfather yeah. of real-time LUT. So <laughs> as long as he doesn't want royalties, right? <laughs> Oh, I of course. That. He did not. He had nothing to do with it, Yeah, but but the point is, is that I don't know of another camera manufacturer that provides that direct a pipeline to our users, where we're literally soliciting feedback, answering your questions, demonstrating features for people from the manufacturer's perspective as they're asking them of us. And I think it's just an incredibly unique platform that no one else is doing. But ultimately, it helps us build better products. I think so. And I, and I think just transparency is like, you know, I, I would hope more camera companies, like, this is what I want to say to camera people. Make people pay for doing things you don't like. <laughs> if you are working with a camera company and they don't treat you well, dump them. <laughs> like, and try to find somebody who will be nice to you. And, like, I'm not recommending people switch to Lumix or whatever, but, like, let people know. Like, make them hear it. Like, go on Twitter. Like, don't don't like suffer in silence when a camera company is doing something because I do believe no matter what I feel about any manufacturer I do believe like every camera manufacturer wants to make a quality product that people like I don't think anybody's out there being like muhahaha I have their money and now we will <laughs> like I think everybody is like knows that their customers need to like the product and I think a lot of times people just as like, if there's not a even a vocal minority of people who are like asking for something, it just doesn't get done. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and so just let your voice be heard. If you're a Lumix shooter, go to Lumix live, let them tell them like, keep telling them you want 4k 60 full friend. Yeah. Keep saying that you want that. You want that feature. Like, I'm not sure you're going to get it. I'm sure someday probably they would like to do it, but like, They'll probably tell you it'll cost you more, and then they'll say, "How much would you be willing to pay for that?" <laughs> but I think, at and the then end all of the wedding filmmakers are like, "Oh, a thousand dollars." Yeah. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, letting people know, like, feedback is so valuable to is. To, to what whatever camera company you're loyal to. Totally, it, it, it's smart to provide that avenue. Lumix doing that weekly show. That's that's because it just goes right to consumer, and it allows cuts down those potential misses of like. Oh, people wouldn't like that? Oh, okay. We won't do that then. I'll make everyone mad when we have to have everyone buy, you know, adapters for all their lenses. <laughs> Keep bringing up that case. That's the main reason why we switched from Canon back in the day is because we would have to buy 25 adapters at 300 bucks a pop for each of ours. And it was like, well, I was mainly like, they had just asked us if we would not like that. Maybe <laughs> they wouldn't have done it. I don't it's know. a risk and it's a calculated risk. Sure. I feel like you never, like, camera companies always are going to have to dump something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, Maybe they had to. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I, 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 I respect that. I didn't feel like it was done in a good listening way. Yeah. Like, I didn't, I didn't feel like they cared about my investment, really, yep. like, that much. And, but that's just my own personal sour grapes, Matt. So <laughs> I, I can't, I can't, I can't get into this part. Honestly, we didn't build an SLR that we had to support. So it's not, we're in a different, sort of market you know yeah. panasonic was the first company into the mirrorless pool so we're, we're sort of fortunate in that well regard. thank you for that yeah thank yeah. you for that yeah <laughs> groundbreaking i remember the first time i saw uh maddie hoopla uh maddie hopoya hopoya yeah yeah i think it's a wedding film and and i had to show it in our film retreat that year where we got our whole team together i was like everyone watch this film no one talk and just watch it and and that's my that was my first yeah, introduction into like the loom world of lumix and um i was just like i have to get this camera in my hand try it out and like 
you know, I think at that point it was just like everyone looked at that film. It was a GH4, right? I think it was GH4. Yeah, they filmed on. It was one of the first wedding films I'd seen on it, and it was just like blew me away. The color. The color's so much better now, though, Matt. Like, like I used to be able to look at films and go like, that's Lumix. Yeah. Like, it just had a look to it that wasn't my favorite. Um, And now, like, it's so much better. Matt, tell me, so so uh, the S5 II as well as the um, uh, S1H are both um, L-mount, right? Correct. What, how, how did that um, partnership kind of come about with Leica? What was the decision-making process there? Because for me, you know, having this camera now, it just opens up a whole new world of lenses that I don't think most wedding filmmakers realize like how good what, Leica how is. How good Leica lenses are and how just I'm, Or how good the Lumix lenses are. Or but. how good the Lumix lenses are, true. Um but um how did that kind of partnership come about and and have you guys always kind of been associated with each other? What what's that story there? Yeah, so if you go back a long time, like almost 20 years. Yeah. Um, Panasonic was looking for a lens partner to help us to build better optics and um, ultimately, Leica was looking to get into the digital photography business. And so this kind of preliminarily started around creating differentiations for our camcorder products. Um, but it secretly was always about this uh, Lumix launch of product to be able to have a factory that could build lenses to Leica standards. And so the Yamagata factory ultimately helped us to convince Leica that we could be a good partner in this regard and make high quality optics. And so they view this as a strategic partnership because they need electronics. Um, we needed optical um, experience or ingenuity to be able to really make photo grade optics. And so it that really formed about 20 years ago. And so um, over the years we've used like a, a lot of our products. Uh, when it came time to go to the full frame mount, you know, you're ultimately looking at, do you build your own mount and try to fight through the sea of development to create relevance for yourself or can you mitigate some of your risk and partner with somebody and and the fact is, is that Leica had already launched the L mount and we already had a relationship with Leica so we we went to Leica and we said we'd be very interested in making products in our brand using this mount and I think ultimately that collaboration between Leica and Panasonic opened up a realization that there's not going to be enough optics if it's just the two of us in this place. So um, Sigma became a third member of the L-Mount Alliance. And ultimately now you have access to a very wide range of lenses that we consider to be first, uh, you know, they're not third party, they are first party lenses. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a tremendous amount of communication that has to happen. And Leica has very strict rules about what it is we have to share amongst the three of us to ensure that that customer gets this a very similar experience. Now, that doesn't mean that like, uh, you know, it's an $800 28 to 70 Sigma lens has no compromises in comparison to a 24 to 70, you know, $2,000 Panasonic or $5,000 Sigma lens. <laughs> There's going to be some motor compromises. Uh, a lot of it's going to be in the manual focus of the lens, you know, and how how much programming you can do. You know, it's something that's very unique to our lenses is that um, you can convert them to either be linear or non-linear. Is that across and the whole GH line as well? Not across the whole GH line. A lot of the GH line can do that, um, but some of the less expensive lenses don't have that ability. But in the L mount, they all can do it. That's um, awesome. And then that's in the Lumix and that's in the Leica lenses. But even all the Sigma lenses that have been adapted over, if they are a focused by wire lens. Some of their really long stuff isn't focused by wire. It's it's truly mechanical focus, which means it can't be programmed, right? But yep. if it's a focused by wire system from Sigma, it's going to offer that programmability. Now, mm-hmm. the difference is that that Sigma lens may only be able to do like a 360 degree rotation and a 90 degree. It may not give you all of the options, but we're the same way. Some of our lenses only give you up to 360 degrees. And then, you know, I got 210 and you know 180 and going down the list. While some of ours will give you 1080 degrees of rotation for macro work. It just depends on the lens. But the point is you're going to get those same experiences and we're going to give you the maximum potential of that lens. It's autofocus motors will be at their absolute best with our system. 
you don't lose that dual IS where on our cameras, the sensor can stabilize and then the lens can stabilize. So you have the lenses, you know, optical stabilization of our in-body stabilization. Those all work together. Now they won't necessarily do all five axes. It's going to be limited to what the motors can do in the lens. But as long as the lens is capable, we're going to give you all of that functionality, which is, I think, very unique in the L-Mount Alliance. And it ultimately gives us the second largest, um, you know, inventory of lenses for people in the mirrorless system. Only Sony has more lenses available than Panasonic right now. Wow. And yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's saying something because we were the latest one to the party in full-frame mirrorless. We're already well, it's so only Sony because Sony added Tamron, too. Well, yeah, and, and Sony's got like a five, six year head start on us. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it's going to yeah. take us a little while to catch up. But the nice thing is we've zoomed right past the other two. So um, you're, you're really looking at the most complete system that isn't Sony when it comes to uh, a series of lenses that are available that behave as first party lenses. Just in general, like not just Lumix only, but Jared, aren't you, don't you feel that the number one thing that actually has, besides like cameras, improving i think everyone talks about that right oh all the cameras are good yeah that's basically true like apart from like the thing where camera bodies are better than ever and everyone i think that's a well-established discussion that you can get in cheaper and have a better product than ever across all camera manufacturers i don't think what gets enough play now is how much better the optics are yeah than like when we started filmmaking, like you pretty much were like L glass and everything else was crap, <laughs> like plastic, you know, like garbage. And like every manufacturer maybe had like one line of lenses that was good. And then the other line like below it was pretty much garbage. And like, if you kicked it, like one, it would explode. They were like yeah. the amount of nifty fifties, the Canon nifty fifties I had that just literally just, exploded like <laughs> it, like you don't see that anymore like we have a whole the whole line of your primes which i was like oh cheap lenses you know like i saw the price point they're really good really good <laughs> they're really, really good, good. <laughs> they're like i would shoot with them yeah like i was like normally I, I i'm say, a snob about that yeah if you're a lumix shooter there's no reason you shouldn't have the full lineup of of lumix primes like they are just beautiful and and in a, in a pinch if you're just like i just need a 35 but maybe i don't want to spend you know five six thousand dollars on a you know uh, well in the gimbal like switchability they're all the same weight right yep the same it's great i don't know if they're the same length but they seem the same yep. like you i never was like i don't use primes on a gimbal because of this situation i'm like i don't want to deal with it well i quite frankly you can't put your 24 to 70 on the gimbal we have um, with the S1H2, and I was like, "Dang it! What am I gonna do? Like, it just didn't. It didn't fit. Like, the um, eyepiece is too big." Um, so I was like, "Okay, uh, we got to use these primes." And I was like, "This is gonna be. Oh, this is gonna suck. It's gonna ruin." My and I was like, switching primes all day at this wedding, and I was like, "Oh, this is actually not that bad." Like, super easy, super it fast. It was fine, and yeah. I was like, I was actually kind of blown away. Like. Just that kind of thoughtfulness, like we are going to make these so people can put them on a gimbal. Like who does so, that? So, yeah. so I think it goes a little even deeper than that. And I, and I, I want to give Nikon a lot of credit in this conversation because I, I personally think that they don't get enough credit for the lenses. I would agree, doing. actually, with their with <laughs> especially, especially with wedding filmmakers. It's just because the video thing, but from a yeah. standpoint of an image and the gla their glass is incredible, actually. Yeah, it's actually like funny because Nikon was my first. DSLR camera that I think I shot with. They, they were the first to like come out with like video features on it. And, and I don't know, I was one of yeah. even before the 5d Mark II. but well, anyways, let, me, yeah. let me clarify that yeah. the Nikon DSLR lenses is not exactly the best waiting video lenses for the video yeah. lenses in general in the Z mount with what Nikon has done. I think they deserve yes. a lot of credit because yes. they've put a lot, they've effectively done a lot of the stuff that we think is important. And, and so I wanna make sure that we call that out because it's not just a Panasonic thing, but um, when it comes to our design philosophy for lenses, especially in the S series, um, there are certain things that we hold incredibly important. Um, so if it's a zoom lens, um, we will, and you put it in manual focus, 
we will use the autofocus motor to create a parfocal behavior in the lens. And so for the people who are out there who don't know what that is, it just means that you zoom tight on your object, you set focus once, and then if you go wide or tight, it's going to stay in focus. So it's a nice way if you're a camera operator to be able to set focus once on the, you know, the, the wedding party during the ceremony, and then you can go wide and tight and there's just going to always be in focus. You don't have to touch focus again. And so parfocal on all the zooms, um, it's not technically parfocal. It's not mechanically parfocal. It's electrically parfocal, but it makes your life easier when you're doing event work. Um, well, it's just one definitely. less. I mean, I'll tell you, that is a thing. If I have one of my ex less experienced shooters, I always know when they zoom their camera back and forgot to refocus. Yep. Like that is a major problem. <laughs> so anyway, that's yeah, And so in, in this, in this regard, all of the zooms in the S series and most of the ones that carry like the Leica branding for the G series, they do this. Um, the second thing we're really focused on is lens breathing. Um, it's a, it's a pet peeve of ours. We don't think you should have to crop the image in post and put a bunch of data for the lens to be able to keep it from breathing. We think it should just not breathe in the first place. And so those are things that we focus on in the cameras. We already talked about the manual settings, you know, the ability to program the, the rotation for the fo manual focus. But um, on the prime side, it was a very conscientious decision to make those primes all the exact same housing. So whether it's the 18 all, all the way up to the 85, they are, are the same housing. They are the same length. Everything is basically the same. And they're within a few grams of each other. And so mm -hmm. that was by design. But on top of that, they are all color matched. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen other manufacturers where you've used three different focal lengths. They all have slightly different look. They all have slightly different uh, color. Yep. And, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. you're going to see in the S-series, they are all, everything is consistent. Um, and it's just because we're worried about video shooters. You know, photographers, they don't really have to worry about how the color is rendered matching another camera because they're not cutting from camera A to camera B to camera C. You guys are cutting stuff constantly from multiple camera angles. Yeah. So we know the color has to be consistent to, to maintain your workflow. Um, and then outside of our lenses, on the S5 II, you can actually program color profiles for other lenses. So if you have a lens that leans a little more um, into red, you can actually dial back the red and then program it for that lens so that you know that it's going to closer be a closer match to the rest of your kit. So um, those are our, our sensibilities when it comes to lens design. And we think for your community, these are the kind of things that will really appeal to them. Yeah, totally. And I would agree. I think just ease is actually really important. Is it easy and does it require me thinking? to do, can I focus on the client? Can I focus on the subject? Can I focus on what I'm doing? And even something like we were talking about real time LUT and I was like, I keep saying, well, to me, I'm excited about the, the way that it's implemented in the, my color profiles, like oh, yeah. as wedding filmmakers, like the ability to shoot your look. Um, if you're shooting 30, 40 events a year, like yeah, of course there are people who want to spend a ton of time in post grading and all that stuff. But there are a lot of people who are like, I don't need to. I, I, I know I'm making a product. Like I know exactly what I want it to look like. Get and it right in camera. I can get yep. it right in camera and I can get like a finished look in camera, but based with the dynamic range of V-Log. So like you can build the look on any of the profiles you want. So you could put your finishing LUT on top of V-Log or a finishing LUT on top of like um, sit of like V or your finishing luck on top of standard if you wanted, however you want to work, however you want, whatever is important to you about shooting, you're able to accomplish it in a very like cut the crap kind of way. Like I'm going to shoot exactly what I want and I'm not going to deal with any of the issues. And I think that's pretty sweet. I think like there's even more to be explored there. You know, I just think it's, a, it's fun when a can of company plays with you. Like, Let's play. Let's figure yeah. out what works. It's like, we don't know. Like, what Are we going to love this? Is this going to be essential to yeah. my workflow? Like to some camera people, you know this. Like well, me and I, you pick I, I up just, a camera, we use them very differently. I love when a camera company can save me money at the end of the day <laughs> by saving me yes. time. And that's awesome. And I, I think that's that's definitely a feature that, you know, if someone grasped onto it, it's like, yeah, man, can I cut down my post-production by 10, 20% and be well, I'll 10, tell you 20% this, for us, Matt, great. like, I'm not sure we're going to do it. We might try it, yeah. right? If we determine that it works, 
we've saved an hour times 200. Yeah, we do. And that that's made, a lot that of savings. Weddings. Yeah. Like that's five weeks of work. Right. For us to well, not do that. <laughs> right. Well, and I think there's the artistic side of this too, right? And yep. at the end of the day, a lot of people get into this because of the art and, you know, the product is less important than the art that they're putting in sometimes. And uh, one thing that I love is that um, I, I love the look of Airy cameras. The, the Airy product yeah, is phenomenal. Yeah. And for me to be able to bring in, if anybody who's ever got a DaVinci Resolve and you look at all of the LUTs that are available for Airy that are in DaVinci Resolve that simulate Kodak stock and Fuji stock and all these different film stocks for, you know, you know, decades and decades of work, my ability to take and apply a transform to log C, which is that's Aries log C3 is their, their log profile and then apply their LUT to that and then kick that into my camera. And now I'm shooting on effectively the same color as, you know, some of the most famous Kodak stock that shot some of the most famous pictures of all time. And I'm getting that look in camera. That's really saying something to a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of desire to be able to get that kind of look not for every project, but for special projects, it becomes really interesting to be able to do things like that. Well, wedding filmmakers, it's it's about like art, but it's like, how can I make, how can I create, how can I focus on creating and not focus on equipment? Like, how can I just, ca yeah. the camera needs to disappear. Yeah. And I just want to, like, even I'm focusing on people. Like, you're working directly with another person. You're doing portrait work. You're, you are the director. And so the less I have to think to create, the better. The more I can interact with my couples, the more I can interact with the photographer there and the planners and, and all that stuff and just know it's going to be solid. And so I, I just love that. And I think options is what I like because I, some things, like you said, they're not the right tool or they're not, not the right workflow. And yep. I think that's awesome. So Matt, I, I have one more question before we uh, let you go. Sure. Um, who do you okay. think filmed the best uh, S52 <laughs> video on YouTube and why was it Wedding Film School? <laughs> well, clearly it was Wedding Film School. Obviously, your guys was the best. Um, for, for your audience in particular, it was the absolute oh, best. Of course, of course. <laughs> actually, what I liked is that you guys did multiple projects, which is what I like probably the best, is that you actually shot real world content. You, you actually your pseudo pseudo monies where your mouth is with this and actually shot a real paid gig um, to show that the product can actually work for that. And for me, that was really impressive. Um, there are several other YouTubers who also did some very nice work as well. Yes, <laughs> so yes, I don't want to, I don't want to know. I will say this, but, like we're not, um, we don't know how to do YouTube. We just are like, well, this looks good. Well, this looks good. Like that's how we think about, even this podcast, we're like, well, I like this podcast and I like this video. And like, these other people are so much better at YouTube. They're like talking to me like, what about this? What about this? I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I just like nice images. <laughs> like, that's all I know. Yeah. And the wedding filmmaker industry. I mean, it's small, but whenever, you know, we buy, it's like we're buying five, six, you know, I probably have 50 cameras in the other room right now. So it's like. You know, it's a small industry. It's super niche, but but we appreciate you know, um, you guys thinking about us, bringing us out there, kind of involving the wedding film kind of community. It was uh, it was a great experience. That's how so, I looked at it, Matt. Yeah. I was like, this is a a big win for wedding filmmakers. Yeah, like people like don't realize like how underutilized wedding filmmaking is in the camera manufacturing space like they don't like reach out to wedding filmmakers in general like it's pretty much like we're the ugly stepchildren of production world <laughs> yeah yeah like like we know like we don't sell cameras yeah right and so for me it was a big thing that's like oh okay like my industry is being seen as an industry that's like worth investing in worth listening to so that was big for us and we're very appreciative of that. And I hope wedding filmmakers are appreciative of that and are willing to at least give Lumix a shot and check it out. And if they're, if they're moving in that direction, um, Matt, any last second stuff you want to say to the audience? You know, I would just ask everybody if you get a chance and you're interested in learning more about Lumix to make sure you visit Lumix live, get into the community. Even if you're not a shooter, um, of our brand, it's a 
we love to hear feedback from other brands and what you guys like in those products that we should be considering adopting. So um, I think you can get a real good feel for who we are as a company when you get into those Lumix Lives. So, you know, just go to Google, type in Lumix Live. You'll see a guy with a beard. His name's Sean. Um, he's the guy who usually hosts it. I'll Sean's be on there every once in a while. Sean is um, awesome. Yeah, just jump into just jump into the community and, and see what's going on. And obviously, there's a there's a tremendous number of Facebook groups out there that people are a part of. Um, pick any one of them. We're probably monitoring it, and uh, you'll see Sean or I in there. So you can always hit us up there. We're, we're more than happy to answer questions and, and hear feedback and criticism. So um, the cameras won't get better if we don't get that feedback. So by all means, continue to send us the feedback and we'll keep listening. And uh, if you keep buying them, we'll keep building them. That's that's kind of how it's going to work. Cool. Yeah, I love it. Cool. Well, thanks, Matt. And everyone watching this at home, guys, make sure that you are giving this uh, episode and uh, the Wedding Film School show a five-star review wherever you're listening. Uh, really helps us with uh, podcasting algorithm stuff. Also, make sure you're checking out our Facebook group as well. Uh, that's where you can connect with the full community, ask questions. Uh, we actually just added a buying and selling feature on the Facebook group. So if you are so you can all sell in, your other cameras and buy your Lumix. That's that's the idea. That is the reason, actually, we started doing it. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, great community, great place to just get connected with other filmmakers. Because, as you know, uh, wedding filmmaking is a, it's a pretty lonely profession. Most of us are doing this by ourselves. Um, also, check out our YouTube channel where we do... Wedding Film School Live. Two YouTube channels. We do have two YouTube channels. You can check out this podcast on one, Wedding Film School Show, and then check out Wedding Film School, where we do a lot of our camera reviews and behind the scenes of real live weddings, as well as Wedding Film School Live every Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we review your films. Um, but again, guys, thank you so much for paying attention and uh, listening or watching this episode of the Wedding Film School Show. We'll see you around next time. You're on the way, film school show. See you guys.